The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. And in the end, they're not after me. They're after you. I just happen to be standing in their way, and I always will stand in their way. Donald Trump's presidential campaign seems to be driven by grievance over the four criminal cases against him. It's a campaign narrative where Trump is the victim of an unfair justice system, the target of a witch hunt, and somehow he comes to the conclusion that he's just standing in for his supporters. Trump often vilifies the prosecutors bringing the cases, in particular, special counsel Jack Smith. And did you see today that deranged Jack Smith, he's the prosecutor, he's a deranged person, wants to take away my rights uh, under the First Amendment? But Smith is attempting to stop Trump from bringing his politics and misinformation into the courtroom during his criminal trial for election interference. He's filed a motion asking Judge Tanya Chutkin to bar Trump from introducing certain potential defenses. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter and English. So special counsel Jack Smith filed a motion last Wednesday to prevent Trump and his defense lawyers from turning, quote, the courtroom into a forum in which he propagates irrelevant disinformation. Is this basically a motion designed to stop the expected circus that comes with Trump? I mean, we saw it in the New York civil case by the attorney general. Sure. These are critical motions that were filed by the special counsel, in order to limit the scope of where the defense can actually go during this trial. So what Mr. Smith did was to file with the judge a motion barring 10 different forms of evidence that he anticipates that the Trump defense may raise a trial. These are what's called pretrial evidentiary rulings or in limine motions where a judge is asked before a trial to make a ruling as to what evidence can be permitted and what evidence has to be excluded from the trial. And they can be filed by both sides. The defense can file an eliminating motion, so can the prosecution. But what we're seeing here is an attempt by the prosecutor to rein in what could be a very far-flung defense and, in the eyes of prosecutors, an attempt to distract the jury and to politicize this case on a whole series of issues that do not go directly to the evidence that will ultimately convict or acquit former President Trump at trial. So this kind of motion, called a motion in limine, as you mentioned, is common, isn't it? It's quite common. It's filed in many criminal cases. And again, what you try to avoid here is a issue coming up in the middle of the trial. You've got jurors in panel. They're sitting there. They've been hearing a case for a while. What the judge doesn't want and what the prosecution doesn't want is to go into a big argument about some issue as to what can be admitted to trial, what can't be admitted in trial. And in order to give both sides a fair opportunity to prepare adequately for the trial, 
prosecutors will often ask a judge before a trial begins to limit in some way the evidence that the defense is allowed to present to the jury during the trial. Trump has repeatedly said this is a vindictive prosecution directed by Joe Biden and constitutes election interference. Smith wants to prevent him from raising selective prosecution during the trial. What are the standards the judge will use? I mean, is it relevance, prejudicial? What kind of standards? Well, that's a great question. I think the two themes that we are going to see the defense try to go after here are selective prosecution, as you say, and also the concept of election interference. The selective prosecution argument is basically trying to argue that similarly situated defendants have been treated differently by prosecutors and that the defendant in this case is being singled out for some improper motive. So to give a very simple example of selective prosecution, if you're driving down the New Jersey Turnpike and there's 10 people speeding and they pull only you over and the other nine people are not pulled over, even though everybody is perhaps speeding and you're the only one who gets a ticket, you can't really raise selective prosecution there to say that it's unfair that you were ticketed and they were not. You have to go beyond that and to show that you were singled out for some kind of improper motive, that you were targeted for some reason that is constitutionally impermissible. So in this case, to raise selective prosecution is going to be extremely difficult just because there's really nothing to compare this case to. It's so unique. It's so unprecedented that to say that former President Trump is being singled out here when other similarly situated defendants may have been treated differently is going to be a very tall mountain to climb here and unlikely to be successful. Smith also wants Trump to be prevented from blaming the events of January 6th on the Capitol Police, the National Guard, or the D.C. mayor. In other words, law enforcement's failure. And he said... A bank robber cannot defend himself by blaming the bank security guard for failing to stop him. I'm just wondering, because a lot of times at trial, the defendants will point to other people. You know, I didn't do anything wrong, but he did. She did. Is the special counsel trying to prevent Trump from doing that? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. Judges are often placed in the very difficult position in criminal trials to decide what defenses are permissible and what defenses they're going to exclude at trial. On the one hand, a judge is always trying to give a defendant a fair trial, to allow them to try their case, to present their defenses, to force the government to meet the burden of proof, because as always in a criminal case, the burden is always with the prosecution. It never shifts to the defense, and the government has to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. So a judge is going to be very careful not to unfairly tie the defense's hands and let them avail themselves of any reasonable defense. But on the other hand, what a judge cannot let happen is a trial gets completely out of control where the defense tries to go down rabbit holes of issues that are not really relevant, that don't go directly to the guilt or innocence or the burden of proof that the government has to meet in order to get a conviction at the end of trial. And in this case, because it's been so highly politicized, it is extremely important here that the judge reigns in the defense and only allows them to present defenses for which there is a reasonable basis. In other words, as a defense lawyer, you can't just present any fanciful defense you dream up. There's got to be some evidential basis to support that defense. And that is what the judge will have to decide here. So in this case, The argument about that it's the fault of the Capitol Police or the National Guard or the mayor for not preventing January 6th is really beside the point from the prosecution standpoint for the reason you just stated. 
that you can't commit a crime and then blame it on law enforcement for failing to prevent it from happening. And that is what prosecutors are saying the Trump team is trying to argue here. There's a lot that they want to prevent evidence from coming in on. They want to prevent evidence of alleged foreign influence in the 2020 presidential election. They argue that Trump should be prohibited from arguing he was personally tricked by foreign disinformation about the election or that foreign disinformation campaigns led to the January 6th riot. And it just comes to mind cases where it seems like defense attorneys throw everything at the wall just to see what sticks. And is the special counsel trying to prevent Trump from doing that? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And that is exactly the tension between the prosecutor and the defense. When you're the prosecutor, you want this case to go in very focused, very streamlined. You want everything during the case to be presented, to be focused directly on the evidence and whether or not you've met your burden of proof. When you're on the defense side, it's a completely different role that you're playing. You're trying to raise every issue under the sun. You're trying to bring in all kinds of extraneous and perhaps irrelevant information, because at the end of the day, if even one juror is confused by the evidence and unable to vote to convict, then you have a victory there. A hung jury, even one juror, not voting for conviction means that the prosecution has to retry the case all over again. So the defense is going to try to raise a number of issues which they claim are relevant. And here, the foreign interference defense is something that they're going to pursue, I think, quite vigorously. And that defense is basically asking for the government to give them access to more government documents, including classified information from former President Trump's administration that he believes will back up his argument that the election results couldn't be trusted. In other words, that there were outside and foreign influences that were providing disinformation about the campaign. They're seeking access to intelligence about Iran and China, for example, about interfering with U.S. politics. All of this is trying to support the Trump defense that his belief that the election was not fair and was not accurate was something that he believed in good faith. And by raising proof of foreign interference, it supports the argument that his belief that the election was not properly managed, it was not a fair result, was at least a good faith belief, if not in fact true. Coming up, can any trial judge rein in Donald Trump? I'm June Gross when you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I've been talking to former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz of McCarter in English about special counsel Jack Smith filing a motion to stop Trump from injecting politics and misinformation into his criminal trial for election interference. Bob, Trump continues to repeat allegations of election fraud. It's part of his campaign spiel. But those claims have been nearly unanimously rejected by the courts, state and federal. So can Judge Chutkin say, no, this can't come in, it's already been decided in other courts? Yeah, absolutely. The judge can say that there is not 
a credible basis to mount this defense. In other words, there is not credible evidence that the election was not fair, and the judge can point to the many decisions around the country which found that there was no material interference with the election to make the results unfair, and that therefore there is not a basis for the defense to argue that there was some foreign interference that tampered with the election results and allowed President Trump to have a good faith belief that those results were unfair. And one thing that the prosecution will prove to support that is that I think we can expect to see them call a series of former Trump officials, including former Attorney General Bill Barr, former Vice President Mike Pence, for example, and others who would testify that not only do they believe the election was fair, but that they told former President Trump that they believe the election was fair. And therefore, the prosecutors will argue that he had no good faith belief that the election had been tampered with. And in fact, his actions in order to gin up the activities of January 6th were done for the purpose of interfering with the election and not because he truly believed that the election was unfair. Now, my question is this. Will the judge look at these and look at each one individually, make her decision on each one individually, or will she try to balance it out, you know, giving some to Trump so that he has a means of defending himself and giving others to the special counsel? Well, I think the judge will look at each of these defenses individually Certainly, she'll look at the basis that the defense has to raise them and weigh that against the prosecution's argument that it's irrelevant or somehow prejudicial. And that's the balancing act that she's going to have to engage in. And I think we could expect her to bar outright some of these defenses and for others to allow them in, but perhaps up to a point. I do not think you're going to see the judge barring all of these defenses, but she's going to go through them one by one and decide just which ones the defense can raise and how far they can go in order to mount that defense. Smith is making this motion now, but the case has been put on hold by the trial judge while Trump's claims of presidential immunity work their way through the appellate court and perhaps the Supreme Court. Why is Smith doing this now? Is he trying to get ahead of the game or is this the right time for a trial that was supposed to start on March 5th? Well, as you say, the judge who has the trial in the District of Columbia has temporarily froze these criminal proceedings pending the appeal by former President Trump on whether his conduct was immune from prosecution. So at this point, the trial can't really proceed, but the judge can receive motions and at least review them and think about them while they are in this period where they're waiting for the Court of Appeals to rule. So while she can't issue any decisions, she can look at those issues. And what the prosecution is trying to do here is key these things up so that when the Court of Appeals rules and the prosecution expects that the immunity defense will be rejected, the judge will quickly move to these various in limine motions and be able to rule on them quickly. Another thing that's going on here is that we're seeing here a real battle between the defense and the prosecution over who controls the narrative in this case. And so what special counsel Jack Smith has done here is he's raised all of these issues to try to get out in front of the Trump defenses in order to put them on the radar, not only of the court, but also on the public to project in some ways exactly where the prosecution is going and to try to debunk and delegitimize these defenses, which prosecutors are expecting the Trump team to raise. It really is a battle here over the legal versus political view of this case. Prosecutors 
are going to make this case all about the truth versus disinformation, about proof versus propaganda, about the difference between a court of law and the court of public opinion. And the Trump team, on the other hand, is going to try to make this case as political as possible. The political world is the world that former President Trump inhabits. It's what he's used to dealing with. And they are going to try to raise the same themes that we have seen in the campaign, a world of grievance, blaming, trying to message something over and over and over again in the court of public opinion so that it ultimately sinks in and becomes truth. That's what I think we're going to see from the defense here leading up to the trial. And Bob, we saw in the Sam Bankman-Fried trial how the judge there really limited the defense. These kinds of motions excluding evidence, are they issues that appellate courts usually reserve for the trial judge and are hesitant to reverse? Yeah, those are decisions that usually are given wide discretion to the trial judge who hears all the evidence, listens to the arguments, and tries to decide the balancing act. As I said a moment ago, the balancing between giving the defense latitude to raise legitimate defenses, to raise issues for which there is some evidentiary basis, and on the other hand, not allowing the defense lawyers to turn the trial into a circus where there are a host of irrelevant issues that are put in front of a jury that prosecutors will say is being done in order to prejudice the jury, or even perhaps an attempt by the defense to obtain what's called jury nullification. That is to try to convince at least one juror to block any attempts by prosecutors to prove their case. And what jury nullification essentially means is that even when prosecutors have proven their case by beyond a reasonable doubt, which is their standard, that one or more jurors may still vote to acquit for reasons unrelated to the evidence presented at trial. So you're going to see that issue perhaps raised, not directly, certainly because it's improper, but indirectly to try to appeal to the politics, to the unfairness, to some sense that the deck has been unfairly stacked against former President Trump, and therefore jurors should not believe what prosecutors are presenting to them at trial. Judge Chutkin has been on the bench for about a decade. Before that, she was a seasoned public defender. But we saw what happened in the New York courtroom where his civil case was heard. Can any judge really rein in Trump and his defense team? Well, I think the judge is going to try to do that. I think she's going to control her courtroom very carefully because one thing you can't do as a judge is ever let your courtroom get out of control. The judge controls everything that goes on in that courtroom. The judge tells people when they can speak, when they can't speak, the topics they can address, when they can address them, and when the judge will decide the various issues. So the judge has to always remain in control of the courtroom. And I do think the judge is going to have a difficult time reining in former President Trump and reining in his defense lawyers, regardless of what these rulings are, because even if there are certain rulings about certain defenses, that the judge says in these pretrial motions are inadmissible or inappropriate and that the defense can't raise, you're going to see the defense try to raise them anyway, perhaps not directly, but at least indirectly. That's going to be the theme of this trial. It's going to be a battle between the law and the politics of how January 6th unfolded. I mentioned that this trial is on hold while that issue of presidential immunity goes through the appellate process. Most legal experts seem to think that 
Trump is not going to win that, that his claim of presidential immunity will be rejected. What do you think? I do think that the claim for presidential immunity will be rejected, but it's now before the Court of Appeals, as you said. Special Counsel Jack Smith tried to short-circuit that process by taking it directly to the United States Supreme Court, bypassing the Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court rejected that move, which is not to say that the Supreme Court will not ultimately hear this issue, but they wanted to allow the Court of Appeals to decide the issue first. The D.C. Court of Appeals is going to act very quickly. There's arguments scheduled for January 9th on this issue, and I think we can expect a decision fairly quickly, and then it will move to the United States Supreme Court. But really, this is a race to the finish line for special counsel Jack Smith trying to get this case in before the election. And from the defense side, this is a slow and deliberative process where they are trying to inject as many issues into this case as possible because they have no interest in seeing this case go to trial anytime soon. Great insights as always, Bob. Thanks so much. That's Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. Coming up next, Google settles a $5 billion privacy lawsuit. I'm June Gross when you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You may have used Google's incognito mode in its Chrome browser, signified by a little black hat and glasses that's supposed to indicate that your Internet browsing will be concealed or private. Well, Google has agreed to settle a $5 billion consumer class action privacy lawsuit alleging that it essentially spied on people who use the incognito mode, secretly tracking the Internet use of millions of people who thought their browsing was private. The terms of the settlement have not been disclosed. Joining me is Austin Chambers, a partner at Dorsey & Whitney, whose practice focuses on data privacy and security compliance. Tell us about this case against Google, what it's about, and Google's defense. So this case, the Brown case, was a case brought against Google back in 2020. This was a case brought by several plaintiffs in California against Google, alleging that Google collected information while users were using the Chrome browser in what is called incognito mode. So that's the version of the browser, or Firefox has a similar one. There are others across all the browsers that allegedly prevent your data from being collected or tracked while you're on the internet. So these plaintiffs argue that Google, despite the fact that you were using this incognito mode, Google was in fact still collecting information about you, tracking you across the internet, collecting your browser history, and so on and so forth, and basically continuing to spy on you, despite the fact that they said that they wouldn't. And so they brought this claim, basically arguing that this was all valuable data that if they thought they weren't giving to Google, that Google was collecting anyway. And then they put that together. And I think that this came out to about $5 billion, they alleged, in unlawful, unauthorized data collection. What was Google's defense or what was their response? Google basically came back and defended saying that, you know, this is browsing data. It's not very valuable data. It's just data about how you move around the Internet. Most of it isn't data that actually relates to you specifically. This is information about the sites that you visited or maybe the IP address from your device, which is just basically a network ID, a string of numbers of sorts that 
relates to your computer, but it doesn't identify you. And they said that, you know, this isn't personal data. This isn't data that subject to the wiretap acts or other acts that plaintiffs alleged would be subject to those laws. You can't collect unlawfully. And they also basically said, even if that were the case, that you wouldn't have standing in court, basically, that you didn't have harms that would be sufficient to confer standing in court, that, you know, this data wasn't valuable or you weren't actually harmed. You can't prove that you were financially or intangibly harmed in some way. So therefore, they tried to get it thrown out of court multiple times. Let's talk about in August, the trial judge rejected Google's attempt to dismiss the lawsuit. She said it was an open question whether Google had made a legally binding promise not to collect users' data when they browsed in private mode. Tell us a little bit about her decision. Where this case was positioned leading up to August is these plaintiffs have brought these claims back in 2020, and they've been fighting in the interceding years as to whether or not what they've alleged is actually a claim under the law. And so Google had sought a motion to dismiss, saying is these aren't real claims. The law doesn't recognize these claims as potential violations of the law. So this is very early in the case, and Google was basically trying to say that these are not recognized claims. And so what this decision meant in practice is that these claims can proceed. This goes on to discovery, on to trial, and we can actually see whether or not Google actually violated the law. And so it's important because for a long time, historically, and why this case is kind of a turning point, is that we're starting to see the law recognize these types of claims, this type of data collection, these types of behaviors, really as something that can form a cognizable claim. Historically, they had been thrown out at these very early stages and not proceedings. Um, And I guess an interesting piece, you, you mentioned that there was a legally binding promise not to collect data, which is an interesting issue unto its own in the sense that oftentimes we view privacy policies as just a sort of statement of practice. The way that Google had positioned the product, uh, the incognito mode within Chrome, the way that their business operated, what they had told users, and the way that they had set up their user agreements, the plaintiffs were actually able to allege that Google did actually make a contractual promise not to collect data, and that their data collection practices in their privacy policy were a contract between them and the user. At least that was the allegation. So a very interesting sort of side issue in the case. Tell us about the trend of trying to rein in companies' use of dark patterns and deceptive conduct to get users to agree to provide data. And if you could explain that, <laughs> dark patterns. <laughs> of course. So dark patterns are something um, I think many people have probably heard, at least recently in the last couple of years, it's been a sort of trend. And we've seen this both from court cases and you know regulators from the FTC. Dark patterns are sort of this notion that companies will use some sort of interfaces that how, or how they interact with the consumer to try to get them to consent or agree to provide data. And so if you've ever gone to a website, and they say, like, do you want to provide us this data? And they'll give you two buttons. One says yes, one says no, but yes is in red and no is in green. This is the sort of quintessential notion of a dark pattern, something that would be confusing. You would expect, you know, green to be go and say yes and red to be no and block it and stop. So this sort of, you know, bait and switch, this sort of deceptive conduct um, is sort of pervasive, especially in, in cases where you're trying to collect data that people may not want necessarily to give. And so we've seen a lot of companies engaging in these types of behaviors as the law has started to crack down on data collection and you know consumers have become more sensitive uh, to data collection practices by companies. And so that's sort of the underlying issue. And then here, the, the issue with Chrome is that when users open incognito mode, one of the things that they expect is that they're not being tracked. Google for its part, uh, you click this little masked icon. It looks like uh, like a little spy. And you click on him, and he, he takes you to incognito mode. You get a, a screen. 
screen that says that your information won't be tracked. Google won't keep your history. You know, it does tell you that other people may be able to see it, like your employer or whoever operates your network you can still see some of the traffic that your device is uh, engaging in. But it does give you this impression that you're browsing privately. And there's been statements in the privacy policy and in the settings menus and things like that where Google has indicated or at least suggested that this type of tracking would not occur and that you're in control of how your data is being collected. If you want to browse privately, all of this, again, leading consumers to believe they're not being tracked. You say the court applied a holistic approach. Explain what you mean by that. So the court in this particular case, and I think it's a trend that we've seen across you know, some of the recent cases, is that courts, when they're looking at these types of consumer privacy claims, historically, there's been this notion of what's called notice and consent. The idea is that a website puts up a privacy policy, they put in that privacy policy that they may engage in some kind of data collection. And then by continuing to use the site, you have implicitly consented to the conduct that they describe. It's been this sort of simplistic sort of thing. In this case, and in the other cases we've seen, we've started to see courts really kind of applying a more holistic approach in two ways. First, from the sort of consumer perspective, they're they're looking at these apps. They're looking at dark patterns. They're looking at how a service is presented to a user, what representations the website operator makes, or even suggests about how their service works. They're not taking this formalistic approach of looking at the privacy policy, looking for the magic words in the privacy policy and moving on. They're saying, okay, maybe you did that, but you also did this over here. This suggests that this wasn't happening or you presented it in such a way. And then they apply a more holistic approach to the type of data that's being collected. I mentioned that one of Google's defenses to this was that this data wasn't valuable. It even potentially didn't identify you at all. However, courts today are looking at that data and saying, it is valuable data. They're looking at evidence that Google was profiting from this type of data, even if it wasn't directly related to a person, they're still able to extrapolate trends from how a device sort of navigates them across the internet, what sites they see, et cetera. And so we've started to see them sort of looking at that and saying, okay, well, yes, this one piece of data maybe doesn't identify you, but if I put it together with this other piece of data, the time, the type of device, and so on and so forth, we can extrapolate very valuable information about how you and people like you use the internet. And not only is that valuable, that is a privacy harm. That is still your activity. That's still your data, your privacy that's been affected by this conduct. What are the biggest takeaways from this case for other consumer privacy lawsuits? It's a part of a trend. It's really a milestone in my mind to all these sorts of different types. There's ongoing litigation around similar data collection practices, similar sorts of claims under the Wiretap Act, both in California and the Federal Wiretap Act. We've seen a lot of these claims really proliferating over, say, the last year or so. And this case, I think, is a milestone in that line of cases, largely because the court does recognize, again, that this is valuable data. The plaintiffs do have standing. We're seeing consistent cases following the TransUnion Supreme Court case a number of years ago, really starting to interpret TransUnion, which recognizes there are privacy harms, that these are intangible harms, sufficient to confer standing. This has solidified that notion on the one hand. And then similarly, what we've seen is that where companies engage in some kind of conduct that at least is ostensibly in some way deceptive, that if plaintiffs can allege some kind of deceptive conduct, that they're going to have more success in these sorts of claims. And that, again, that a website that just puts up a privacy policy, that's not sufficient anymore. And often that's sort of what you see. That's how industry is operating. That's sort of been the norm for a number of years. And again, we're starting to see courts recognize that that may not be sufficient. And we started to see these types of allegations popping up not just since this case, but sort of alongside.
decide this case. And I think that's why it represents a really significant moment, frankly, for these types of cases. How do you advise tech clients about how transparent they have to be about their privacy policies? Going forward, I think that this case really is um, its something that we can point to to tell clients that, again, historically what they've looked at is, you know, what does our privacy policy say? And did we get users to, you know, read the privacy policy or at least acknowledge that they've seen it or had the ability to read it? Whereas today, I think what we're seeing is that maybe that's not sufficient, that what we need to do is put a notice that pops up like we've seen. You've probably seen more on, on the web these days, the little pop-up banners and things like that, telling people that their data is being collected for social media or for advertising purposes and just letting people know immediately upon visiting a site that, that this is happening and then giving users a choice around that. So I think, you know, what we've been looking at kind of in light of a lot of these cases is, is advising clients, you know, anybody with a website, frankly, that engages in advertising or uses social media type integrations to be more transparent, to give users that sort of upfront notice about what's actually happening on the site, what data is being collected in the background and then giving them some kind of choice, like giving them the ability to click that reject all button and say, you know, that they don't want to be tracked by these services. The class action sought at least $5 billion. Do we know any of the terms of the settlement? As of today, we don't know the terms of the settlement. Uh, It's all all still confidential at this point. Um, That $5 billion number uh, was that, I think that came out of the assessed damages for the class. And so the class was essentially everyone who had used incognito mode from, I believe it was June 1st, 2016, until the case was filed in 2020. Um, and so I think they were alleging somewhere between $100 and $1,000 in damages per affected class member. And so this, this number came about based on sort of the, um, the claimant's assessment um, and some evidence that they had uncovered around uh, what Google was selling browsing history data for and what, how they were monetizing it. Um, as part of their business. But the actual terms of the settlement, we don't know. And I suspect that those of us who turned on the incognito mode in that time period are going to get a little card saying, talking about the settlement and some kind of pittance. That's what these class action lawsuits usually end up being for consumers. That is correct. I would be very interested to to see how um, how they find out how to give you the card or how to send it to you and who was actually inspected members. So I think it'll be very interesting to see how they um, actually do link that up. Any final thoughts? The, the big takeaway for me is, again, that, uh, you know, we see these trends of, you know, data collection around people's browsing behavior and all, all of advertising and all of the analysis that goes on about how people use the Internet, how they decide they visit, all of this stuff that's ha- been happening in the background since about as long as the Internet's existed, um, is really becoming somewhat of a sensitive thing. And uh, the courts are responsive to that. And, you know, we're seeing consumers really starting to take the initiative here. Um, And, you know, clients just need to be aware of that. And, you know, anybody sort of with a website sort of needs to be aware of this, this activity and these potential claims. This lawsuit may make people think twice before clicking on that incognito mode. Thanks so much, Austin. That's Austin Chambers, a partner at Dorsey & Whitney. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.